You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish, and today we are joined by the man who is used to typing X into his browser. His name is Abby. <laughs> it's usually followed by two more X's. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's more than we needed to know. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, man. What's what's going on? What's uh, I'm assuming you're on the the X app now. That's well, you know, I'm I'm perusing. You know, I'm looking at it a little bit, but uh, it will it will always be Twitter to me. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't even know what the new thing is called. It's not. Is it, I'm pretty sure it's still called tweeting, right? Yeah, I, yeah. X. <laughs> Dude, did you see what X-ing. Elon X'd? <laughs> It gets, it gets a little racy if you're out there xing each other. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. How you doing, Abby? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. It's a uh, it's, it's it's a Monday. It's August. It's Toronto. It's nice and hot, muggy, humid, but uh, we'll take it, man. August twenty first, twenty twenty three. Coming to the end of the summer here. Uh, we were both kind of out and about um, two weeks ago, which is why we ended up doing a replay episode. But today we are back to talk about the state of the industry, kind of recap the summer before we kick off here into into Labor Day. Um, And, you know, if I was to use one word to talk about where we are, it's kind of mixed. And we talked about this a few episodes ago. You know, if if you notice, we had a little bit of a trend of our cannabis stocks interesting again, cannabis the contrarian play. And uh, there was a couple episodes of talking about, hey, there's some good stuff cooking here that is going opposite of the price action and you're getting, you know, better prices in this stuff. Um, and, you know, the scenario that I talked about was, look, I think the earnings are going to be better than people think uh, for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into. But at the end of the day, the macro backdrop and the, the stock market backdrop, I think is going to be worse than people think. Um, and, uh, and we could have pretty good earnings, but also a total risk off appetite. Um, and those things seem to sort of be coming together. Now, it's, it's probably a little too early to uh, say for sure. But, you know, we've we've just had Q2 cannabis earnings for the most part. And overall, some like pretty sneakily good results. You know, definitely some outliers. Um, but overall, uh, I thought we actually had pretty good results. Yeah, that was the consensus, I guess, across across everyone. Um, yeah, positive across the board uh, within the industry and uh, revenue growth was doing pretty well. And um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you do peel it back a little bit, there was some more interesting uh, subsectors, I guess, in this, in, in the space than Mm -hmm. others. But um, yeah, overall, I mean, it's, it's much better than what most people were expecting because typically summer, no Q2 is a good month. Sorry. Yeah. Q2 is, is the quarter, right? You're, you're, um, you know, Q1 is usually pretty soft winter time. Q1 actually wasn't that bad. Uh, but Q2 is usually like Q2 and Q3 are gangbusters. You know, you have warmer weather Q2, you have 420. So that really helps. Um, and, and Q3, you have a lot more tourism and just in general, when there's better weather, people tend to, you know, go pick up, yeah, smoke more, you know, take more up to the cottage or on vacation or whatever. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it, there is a seasonal impact. Absolutely. And that is helping us. Um, you're also seeing the benefit of um, not, not yet Maryland that's coming next quarter. Uh, but you're seeing the benefit of um, New Jersey, Connecticut uh, and uh, you know, Rhode Island a little bit for GTI, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but those States continue to perform. Um, and so, so overall, relatively good. One earnings report I want to just shout out in particular was Glasshouse. So Glasshouse had, you know, very strong earnings. Uh, and, and you know, we can just go through them quickly to just give you an idea of what we're looking at. Like the uh, volume um, increased quite significantly uh, on, on Glasshouse of uh, wholesale. 
So that's really encouraging to see the amount of output they were able to generate. Yes. But also just the amount they were able to sell, right? The problem is typically not generation, it's it's sell through. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that they were able to have a huge uptick uh, in, in wholesale uh, volume was great. Also, by the way, coupled with an uptick in wholesale pricing. So markets that you know we traditionally looked at as being um, kind of having no bottom, finally finding some kind of bottom, right? That's very encouraging, uh, I, I think, for, for everyone to look at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> and so I, I actually just pulled it up here right now to take a look at. So from Q1 to Q2, uh, output roughly doubled. Now they had, I think they had some kind of issue as well. So uh, before that, they were doing about 75,000 um, dry pounds uh, in Q4, and then it fell to just under 50, and now it's above 100, right? So 100,000 dry pounds, that's a lot, right? That's, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot. Uh, their cost came down, but it's also because their volume went up, right? So that's mm-hmm. you know sort of um, expected. But here's where it gets really interesting. Wholesale biomass sold an average selling price per pound. Okay, so let's go. Uh, let's skip Q1 because Q1 they had you know that weird uh, quarter. But Q Q3 and Q4 they did of last year they did something like sixty six thousand pounds um, of uh, uh, of volume. Selling between two hundred and two thirty-five a pound. Okay, that went up in Q one to about two ninety a pound, but the volume went down. Then in Q two, two ninety went up to three forty a pound, and that was at and they sold ninety thousand pounds. Right, so it, it's almost double what they sold in Q one, and it's about fifty percent higher than what they sold in Q four of last year. So anyway, mm-hmm. you slice it. This is good stuff. Right. This is very, very encouraging. Um, Now, let me just put an asterisk next to that. They did something like eight million dollars of operational cash flow, which is awesome. But when you peel back the onion and look at um, the amount of uh, 280E tax they had to pay and you, you know, take out all the adjustments, you're more or less at cash flow break even right now, Mm -hmm. which let's be clear, very encouraging for a uh, large California player. This company has made great progress and they deserve tons of credit for what they've done here. Um, I, I would say that the problem is, you know, we're not yet at the point where you're OCS, OCF generative and then able to pay back the high cost of financing um, that we have in this industry, right? I mean, uh, so, so that's something just to keep in mind, but the progress is fantastic. It's very good to see. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, if you follow the Glasshouse story, they were they were purpose built to be a large scale cultivator. Which, you know, I can't remember exactly when when they full came, when they came online, but I remember when they went public. And then for the longest time, it was just a story that was just discounted completely. Right? They, they just they weren't hitting numbers. People were sort of you know they they just weren't they weren't um, operating properly. Right? Or at least a full scale or whatever. Now, do you think the question to you? I, I don't know how. how um, deep you've um, dove into these fin- financials, but the question to you is, do you think it's because of all the pain that California's kind of gone through? Maybe some of those little players are now gone that these big guys <clears throat> that were sort of cultivating in uh, large quantities are able to actually, you know, sell their product now. So I, I don't know. Look, I'm not, I'm certainly not a California expert and I don't pay a ton of attention to California, um, but I do pay attention to Glasshouse. I think if you look at the other side of the coin, um, who else had a, a pretty surprising beat on earnings was Village Farms, right? So mm-hmm. these guys are kind of like mirror images of each other on either sides of the border. So Village Farms, you know, is a, a legacy vegetable grower, um, you know, tomato grower. And really your peppers. Uh, I think tomatoes, peppers, but yeah. I'm sure they grow all kinds of things. But, you know, the, the key point is like you're seeing... Um, you're seeing real growers and sorry, when I say real, I should say you're seeing commoditized growing being rewarded in this industry. And that was a knock against cannabis from the very beginning from people who were quite bright who said, look, this is going to be a commodity product. Mm -hmm. Um, and unless you're doing, you know, small batch craft or, or very, you know, well marketed stuff, you know, like a cookies or, or what have you, um, this is where the industry goes to be a 
agricultural grower at scale, low cost, um, but have value for dollars, right? And mm-hmm. basically, y- you're able to compete with the black market. You're able to sort of undercut your competitors. Village Farms was one of the first companies to do that um, and do it at scale and do it in a a, uh, a greenhouse, right, at scale. Um, and, and that's what you're seeing, right? I mean, that stock has been you know, devastated from where it used to be. It's had to raise capital a bunch of times, you know, like, like anybody else. But what you're seeing is that the large format stories are working now, you know, Abby, to your point, why is that? I I think there, there's a couple of reasons why, but ultimately um, it's, it is a game of surviving and it's a Mm -hmm. game of kind of lowest cost structure wins. Um, And, and part of that story is also capital cost structure. So there's, you know, starting to be more discussion around these sale leasebacks and, you know, what they mean um, in the industry. Right. And, you know, Columbia Care sort of hinted that on their call where they said, yeah, we feel that, you know, the, the cost of this uh, debt, essentially, which is which is, you know, their their um, sale leaseback is essentially like a form of real estate debt. They're like, hey, this the rate we're paying on this is too high. It should be, I think they said 300 to 500 basis points lower, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what I always said when people asked me about cannabis real estate. I said, these sale leaseback transactions are not that interesting to me because you're overpaying for this asset and manufacturing a yield, and then it becomes a credit play. Mm-hmm. And if if at some point the tenant can't pay or chooses not to pay, we got a problem. Right. So Columbia Care is now saying, hey, that debt's too expensive. But, you know, we also gave you more than 100 percent of the value of the building. So Mm -hmm. risk adjusted, you know, it's not too expensive. And the fact that you're even talking openly on a call about, you know, readjusting that cost of capital shows you that maybe, you know, maybe there's we didn't even charge you enough for the risk adjusted return on this deal. Mm -hmm. No, I. Fully agree with you on that, and and I think it for the large scale cultivators, right? Like we are talking about the two that were probably the best. Uh, well, Village Farms for sure was the best one in Canada uh, throughout, um, and so there is a little bit of survivorship bias there, right? Because there were a lot of other large scale cultivators that did start out that aren't here anymore. Yeah, so Abby, I want to be careful about saying best because you know we've been through certain waves in the cannabis industry and. You and I were around for the days of funded capacity, right? Even by funded capacity, where the idea was we have enough dollars raised that we can build out a million square feet, and that's how we should be judged, right? And Mm -hmm. farms, very rightfully so, said, look, we should be judged based on the fact that we actually know how to operate a million square foot greenhouse. And we can do it growing tomatoes and we do it growing peppers. And so we can do it growing cannabis. And, you know, other people would say um, to them, like, okay, well, you're a tomato grower, right? You don't know anything about growing weed and we're going to grow the best weed ever. Well, a lot of those guys who grew the best weed ever, they did not know how to do it under, you know, the government regulations of no pesticides. They did not know how to do it at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, in a million square feet, you know, they, they were doing it in basements, right? So doing it in 50,000 feet was a big jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on top of that, the market just isn't there to absorb that kind of volume, right? So, so these are all things that were problems um, and continue to be problems and, it, and are now being rationalized. Um, and so I, I think what you're seeing is, you know, um, extinction events happening in this in these nodes, especially Canada and California. Um, and and then, you know, it's being rationalized. And these guys who are growing at scale at a competitive cost um, mm-hmm. with quality, right? Like maybe, you know, I'm, I'm sure people can argue that, hey, it's not indoor quality. Um, although I would say, based on my experience going to Glasshouse Farms, for example, I actually do think they're comparable to, to indoor. Maybe not the frostiest, you know, of indoor flower, but, you know, close enough. And ultimately, I think, the problem that we've seen in this industry is that weed is weed. And it's very hard to differentiate cannabis in the jar, right? Mm-hmm. Like the average consumer is buying based on what's in the store, what has the highest THC percentage, 
And then maybe, you know, looking at the flower, the packaging, the coolness of it, you know, how frosty the buds are. And if, if anything, effect is like bottom of the list. I feel like people don't even ask about effect, right? They ask about, you know, um, they ask about THC percentage first. So, so sorry, just cap it off. So, so basically, I think that at the end of the day, as much as, you know, connoisseurs and industry people like to, you know, slice and dice it and talk about premium and ultra premium and all that stuff, you know, similar to wine, it's very hard to differentiate what's inside of the bottle or inside of the jar. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I mean, that, that <clears throat> I, I do think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, with Village Farms, though, I, I do remember when they came around, I think a lot of people actually liked the fact that they were previous ag, like agricultural experts, you know, and they weren't just coming around with like, you know, coming around saying they, they can grow it. But, you know, it, it, I, I could be I could be remembering it incorrectly. Um, D- diff- different, uh, different plays, right? I just remember, yeah. you know, back in the day when the forums mattered a lot more, you know, and when, when Yahoo Finance boards were hot, right? People would always just rag yeah. on them and saying, oh, you're, you're, you're paying that much for a tomato growing company, right? Like that uh, was kind that. of the, the knock against mm-hmm. them, if you will. Yeah, I just I just remember I think you and I were driving back from Detroit and you were looking at their their or I was driving and you were looking at their um the quarter results. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you were like, "Oh my god, like this is crazy. I can't remember. They were like the first ones to have like gross margin." <laughs> no, no, they had they actually had like gigantic EBITDA margins. Like it was like 50% EBITDA margins or something. And I remember I I, I remember exactly what you're talking about because it was what happened was it was the very early days of legalization or right before legalization. Mm-hmm. And it was all wholesale and it was VFF, Medi farms. And I think Valens were having like amazing quarters while everyone else was struggling. Right. And, but what they were doing in VFF's case was their entire crop was sold B2B wholesale to, um, you know, some other growers at say $4 a gram. Mm-hmm. Right. And their cost all in was something like, you know, two dollars a gram. Right. right? And so they they weren't paying the excise tax. Um, they weren't paying, you know, anything really. Like they, they were they were just wholesaling it out the door. They you were know, one now, of the few people with actual product too. Exactly. So that's the thing. People were desperate to get it. Um, and it was probably pretty good product compared to what was out there. And right. all these companies were flush with cash. So they had to use that cash to justify their business existence, right? Um, and, and what I want to point out is just going back to Glasshouse for a second, you've got 90,000 pounds sold, which is again, super impressive. Good for them. Um, and that's 90% of their production by the way. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's wholesale biomass. So again, really good for them. Um, but it just shows you, you know, it's being sold like any commodity at the market clearing price. In this case, that price has gone up, which is a great sign. But that price is $340 an ounce, or sorry, a pound. Um, what that equates to, there's about 450 grams in a pound. That's under a dollar a gram. You know, you're talking in and around 75 cents yeah. a gram, right? So that's, so first of all, the fact that you can generate, you know, a margin at that price is very, very impressive, right? It's showing mm-hmm. you, because their cost to produce, what how they're defining it is, is 139 um dollars a pound which is like 30 cents or something like that so these are very impressive numbers it just mm-hmm. shows you where the business is at right now the question is really the sustainability of these numbers will we remain can you can you maintain this sell through can you maintain this cost per per um, gram and if you can then hey we got something interesting here on an EBITDA perspective this is going to end up being a very reasonably priced business um, and, and, you know, can you clean up your capital structure um, or can you keep growing such that this becomes actually cash flow generative after tax? Mm-hmm. So these are all the things that are TBD, but I do want to shout it out as being just a very impressive result from a very, very real company and following a trend um, of probably what should have been the reality from the beginning that real experienced growers are rewarded. Yeah, I mean, that it. In hindsight, it does make a lot of sense, um, but you know, it was in early in the early days as we talked about. It was whoever could raise capital, right? And the the real experienced growers weren't the ones that were raising all the capital. Well, and, and you know, when we say real experienced <clears throat> growers, right? People looked at it and said, 
you, you know, you, you know, I remember this. Every pitch was, I grow the best weed, right? How, how why are you going to be different than everybody else? Well, my, or, or no, I have, I have the master, I have a master grower who grows the best weed. He won right. this cannabis cup this year. Yes. He won this cannabis cup this year. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fair. Totally. And it wasn't, uh, you know, I have someone who's the best tomato grower, right? I have someone who's grown a million square feet of tomatoes, right? So that was the, that was kind of the holy grail back then that you were an experienced cannabis grower. And it turns right. out the, t- the tomato guys were actually the right guys to be talking to, right? But, you know, you needed to combine the skill sets, but it was much, I think, easier for the tomato guys to learn cannabis than for the cannabis guys to learn how to grow in a million square feet. Right. Exactly. Right. So that's that's the delta. So so moving on, um, one thing, actually, sorry, just just to kind of dig in this a little further. This reminds me of um, I was reading a, a Yahoo Finance article, and it had some quotes from uh, legendary investor David Einhorn, and what he mentions here, um, and this is a this is a quote I got here that was reposted by Merida Mitch. And, and specifically what, what he's talking about in this quote is the idea that in today's market, he's doing things a little bit differently. He's looking for stocks that nobody's paying attention to. And he, he's a classic value guy. So this is not out of the you know norm by any means. But he asks this interesting question, which, which um, uh, I'll just say here. It's basically saying, uh, what do we have to do to make a good return if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there to hear it? So what happens if there aren't other investors who are going to bid up the stocks and figure out what we have figured out after we figured it out? Because that's what we're used to. The result of this market, though, is that you have this enormously bifurcated market. There's a wasteland of companies that literally nobody is paying attention to and nobody is following. There's no buyers. You can have these companies at essentially a wasteland valuation. Now, this is only a partial quote. Um, I believe in the article or in the podcast he did, he goes on to talk more about the fact that there are companies that are trading at like sub five times free cash flow, right? So if a company's trading at sub five times free cash flow, there's probably a reason why. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe it's truly that nobody cares about it. <clears throat> we are definitely not in that territory in cannabis. We are unfortunately not in the world of, you know, we might be trading sub five times EBITDA. But definitely not free cash flow, which is you know even beyond operational cash flow. So did, I, I, did they give any examples of companies that were trading there? No, and you know what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to look through his 13F because uh, you know you you can see for a fund of his size like what they're actually doing. So mm-hmm. I'll report back on that. I actually have a note to do that when I get some time. Um, but that's that's just one thing I'd be very careful when you put an, an asterisk next to. But, you know, what he's talking about is a really interesting thought. It's a really interesting kind of academic exercise that we chatted about a couple episodes ago, which was, would you buy something that's a really good value stock, do, you know, doing good margins, generating good cash flow, um, if nobody else is going to be interested in it? Because typically what's been happening over the last 10 years, which is essentially our entire investing career, is that the majority of the uplift is coming from... Um, other people figuring out the story and getting excited and bidding up the equities, right? So you're buying something today because it's going to get hot or hotter than it is right now, right? And that's typically what we call momentum investing. But what value investors typically do is they're finding something that's unloved or ignored, buying it today, holding their nose. Um, and traditionally, the idea was, well, the, the cash flow is so good, the return of capital is so good that ultimately, you know, I can make some yield off this, right? Imagine if you're earning a really, really high dividend and the company mm-hmm. can keep it going for a couple of years, then you'll get your money back, right? Exactly. The problem is, you know, in most of the returns that have been generated have really been from uh, stocks being bid up, not from return of capital or, or return on capital. So when we talk about cannabis, at the end of the day, people could say, well, the numbers are so good, no one's paying attention. But you got to look at operational cash flow and, you know, you, you do have to look at the future of operational cash flow. And one of the problems that we're having is you're still seeing continued price compression in most markets, right? I mean, mass is, is a really terrible market now for that, for that reason. Um, but like even markets like Illinois, which have really been uh, kind of big revenue and, and profitability drivers, 
I think you're going to see a lot of softening happen happening there. I think a lot's already happening. Um, and places like Florida are very competitive now. I mean, you really need recreational to save the day there, or it's going to be a very challenging market. So my point on that is just be careful differentiating cash flow from EBITDA. You know, as, as we've seen, they're, they're very different things. And mm-hmm. even companies that could be generating good cash flow today, you know, how sustainable is that cash flow? That's the problem that we've seen in cannabis. Yeah, and we've seen as like some of these more attractive limited license markets start becoming mature, you see insane price compression, right? And that kind of goes back to the whole uh, argument that I think you and I have been making for for a while now, which is when a lot of these um, uh, stocks were modeled out, you know, they were modeled out with pretty high, or these markets were modeled out, they were modeled out with pretty high um, dollar per eighth, right? Mm, on on, yep. the, on the legal side, it was like sixty five or seventy dollars. Um, in some markets, uh, or like they they were dollar they were um, modeled out with like twenty or twenty five dollars per gram at one point in some markets, um, and obviously we've seen that that's not the case, right? Because you always got to remember you're not only competing with the legal market, you're also competing with the illicit market, and the illicit market has high quality flour at reasonable at cheaper prices or used to in some markets, and now <clears throat> the the white market's got to catch up to it too, right? Yeah, look, I mean, and and also you're also just competing with other state markets. So if you look at Illinois, I mean, Illinois borders on Michigan. And for a long time, an eighth was like with tax in 60 to $80 in Illinois. And, you know, you could get an ounce in Michigan for like 100 to 125 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, like, you know, we would, I would talk to, uh, you know, our friends in Chicago and they'd say, well, no one's really making that drive. And I said, well, guys, you don't think somebody's making the drive and buying like 10 ounces and then driving it back? I mean, right. if you think if you're looking at Chicago, they're probably getting the flour from uh, Omaha. Omaha, or sorry, not Omaha, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, got it, got yeah, it, got yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Michigan is just so easy because like it's it's legal in Michigan, right? You can just drive it across; you're not breaking any rules. Well, it's legal. Uh, I mean, you're breaking uh, some Oklahoma rules, but, too. Yeah, you're uh, breaking an insane rule. You can't cross. <laughs> <people>. <laughs> well, you personally sort of can, right? I mean, people do it all the time with these border stores. Right. I mean, you're not supposed to, but yeah, yeah, but you're buying it legally. It's a little bit of a gray area, like how they would if they would even charge you. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. So anyway, all I'm saying is at the end of the day, these these state borders, um, you know, they're porous and that Absolutely. helps that Absolutely. helps the MSOs. Right. You know, when you're in, um, you know, when Ascend is in Collinsville, um, Illinois, but, uh, you know, Collinsville is is really like, quote unquote, they call it uh, East St. Louis, right? Like it's it's over the border. It's part of St. Louis, essentially the greater St. Louis area. Yeah. And consumers are coming over all the time, you know, buying weed and taking it back home, right? So they were, you know, it's a, what, what do we call it? It was a, a self-service um, interstate commerce, right? And that was what the, I think the governor of Kentucky was advocating, like go over, well, you know, you'll get a, we'll make this program legal that you can go over the border you know, and, and buy weed from the neighboring state and bring it back. Right. That was the the idea behind it. So, so anyway, all, all I'm saying is that's probably part of what's happening in mass as well. Like, yes, they've have a lot more licenses online, but also the, those consumers who are coming to mass to get product are just able to get it more and more from their own state. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's hurting mass as well. Right. Well, so, so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was going to say that, like, yes, you're right. The neighboring states, that's the easy argument to make. But, like, again, you know, I, I think that, like, you've really got to look at – you really got to look at the illicit market because you can go to New York, right, and you can find California products there. And they don't they don't neighbor each other, right? They're on <laughs> other ends of the coast. So, so it's happening. People are transporting product all throughout. And you got to remember that, especially when you're looking at these at these markets – um, it, it's not so much anymore. Like, you know, I, I, I feel now that when, when a new market comes online, people are a lot more rational. Um, they've seen it play out a couple of times. They know that, Hey, there's like a two year window for like the first mover to really generate, um, as much revenue as they can. And then they yeah. model in compression like accordingly. Right. Obviously, cause we have the data that proves that now what we didn't before it was like, Oh yeah, I can, you know, the prices are going to keep going up. Right. Which definitely isn't the case. And, and, and the argument there is if you ask, well, why isn't that the case? It's because, there is a massive like illicit market in cannabis. 
and it doesn't necessarily just have to be neighboring stores. Obviously, neighboring stores, like what you're kind of describing is people going to a, a, a state where it's legal to purchase it legally and then bringing it back over. What I'm saying is that like, <clears throat> actually, Michigan's a great example of this is, you know, Michigan had the caregiver model, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Where you're basically, you had a person who would bring you cannabis and you didn't know if it was like, like, like you didn't know if it was legal or not. Right. So it was, it was um, a great market, really. The, the caregiver model is a bit of a great market. And yeah, at the end of the day, it, it, when they when they switched over to, you know, their recreational market, they eliminated all those caregivers. And but it was you know, it I, took a long time for that to really trickle in. Well, my, my point is like what you think all of those people who were, you know, growing, you know, in, uh, under the old system just went away. <laughs> you know, like, like those guys just shut up and, and, and kind of hung up their shingle and went home. Some of them did. Sure. But, um, a lot of them, I think just, just kept going and just said, well, we're just going to keep doing what we were doing. Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. and that's how it works. That's how yeah. it works. And, and the other, the other point to that too, Abby is, um, you know, you're mentioning people <clears throat> go to the illicit market, but you know, the other, the other big thing that just happens like in any system is just the, just the laws of supply and demand. And at the end of the day, you know, cannabis is an agricultural product. And the way agricultural product works is that it, it it's um, a really a depreciating asset, right? People want it fresh. And then once it's considered, you know, bad, the value is zero. So when you're in this situation where you have too much of the product and you can't sell it, you have to really slash your prices to move it, right? And so typically what's happened in states that have... Um, a limited license cap on retail, but not on the grow, for example, um, then what will happen is, you know, the, the retail, uh, the, the dispensaries will be sort of the last line of defense. And they'll say, well, I'm not cutting my prices, right? Okay, the growers will cut their prices, but I'm not passing that along to the consumer because I don't want the price to come down. Right. But eventually, you know, the, eventually it'll, it'll trickle down because um, the stores will compete amongst themselves. Right. Yeah. And then someone like Ascend, for example, does these outlet stores where with the outlet stores, the prices are like sometimes half of what people are used to. Right. So then suddenly you're seeing way lower prices um, and, and one way or another, people end up cutting price to um, win customers. And it, yeah. it just becomes sort of this, this uh, loop, this cycle. Um, and now is kind of the first time we're seeing those some of those prices hit rock bottom and start to find some kind of floor and start to rebound a little bit. So it's an ongoing process and we're really still figuring out where all of this goes. But um, just to kind of close off the loop, the negative for the cannabis industry and what this means for the cannabis industry is depending on the market, you're going to have continue headwinds um, if, if you just are steady state in a certain market. Like if you don't have new states coming online, you're facing price compression in your existing states. Mm-hmm. And that's a big problem, right? So um, that's kind of the negative uh, of this. Um, and it's unclear. Yeah, it's, it's unclear how this is going to play out because, um, you know, we're obviously looking at the public companies. The private companies have a really big advantage that nobody talks about when it comes to 280E. Most private operators do not pay a lot of 280E tax. That's a, a little secret of the industry that people don't really talk about. Um, they don't need to do audited financials, right? They don't have a a auditor who's going to argue with them and say, no, your COGS has to be, you know, this. Um, I've talked to private companies who don't show any 280 expense on their, on their financials when they're doing a raise. And I ask them, how do you do this? And I get a variety of answers, but um, there are some way more aggressive strategies to try to guard against 280. And some of it, I'll give you an example. One is to have like an intermediary company, like an affiliate company that um, handles a lot of the uh, plant touching operations and basically, you know, just just not have that company make any money. Right. That company just, you know, basically all of their revenue gets absorbed in cogs um, and that company just loses money. And that's the 280 plant touching entity. Mm -hmm. And then the dispenser or whatever contract services from them. And therefore, you know, whatever the structure is, they do it in such a way that um, the profit gets insulated from the plant touching entity. And uh, it's aggressive, no question. 
but it's kind of like, oh, what are you going to do about it? Right? Like if we get audited, we get audited and we'll fight it in court. That's insane. That's like the small scale version of what these, some of these massive tech companies do, right? <clears throat> yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and um, it, it's also an interesting, you know, tidbit because the public companies are at a big disadvantage in that way, right? Where the, the private companies aren't. Um, and, and so it'll be interesting to see how a lot of that plays out. Obviously, the private companies have their own problems in terms of raising capital, right? And, and you know, because um, these companies operate typically cleaner, you know, it's easier for the public companies in theory to raise to raise capital. Uh, but, you know, look, I mean, speaking of that, I wanted to mention this. Uh, the fund Poseidon, PSDN, is shutting down. Uh, so this is run by the Paxia siblings, Emily and, Emily and Morgan Paxia, uh, both very nice people, been in the industry a long time. And yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of haters dunking on it and just, you know, pointing out the fact that the fund is down like a whole lot. But in reality, I mean, it's just a sign of the times. The market is down something like 90%. The yeah. fund is down something similar. Um, and let's not forget, you know, one of the selling points of the fund was that they were going to use leverage. And at the end of the day, guys, leverage amplifies outcomes. If you use leverage and everything goes down 90%, it's very hard to survive, right? If you use leverage and things go up 90%, you're going to look like a hero. So MSOS doesn't have leverage. It's also way bigger, way, 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 way bigger, like 300 million. So like 10 times the size of Poseidon. Um, at the end of the day, there I haven't seen anybody, including like people I really respect and, and you know, um, uh, follow. I haven't seen anybody have stock selection in this industry that has saved them from the carnage of the industry. Yeah. Just, do just doesn't That's, exist. No. The real trade in this industry was either to get in and out early, um, to have canopy growth by your company in cash, not shares, uh, or to um, or, or to short the sector, right? So the the hedge funds, you know, the notorious you know hedge funds, so we don't know who they are, um, you know, if they truly did all the shorting that that people say they did, then yeah, they probably did really well in this industry. But there's no accountable. Um, public track record you can point to of anyone on the long side in this industry who has not been absolutely ravished by the industry. Zero. It just doesn't exist. So yeah. sad to see this fund shut down. I think it's just, it just is what it is. It's bad timing. Um, and there's, there's really nothing. There's really nothing that surprising about the fact that it's happening, you know, given the drawdown that's happened. And listen, at the end of the day, you know, the, the Paxias will remain in this industry and maybe someday when it's better times, they'll be able to relaunch this thing. But that yep. day is not today. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's definitely true. Uh, there was, there was one thing that I wanted to kind of bring up when we were talking about, uh, Privecos and, um, uh, just, just right before we start, we're talking about Poseidon. Um, one thing interesting that I'm finding right now is the true cannabis operators, the one who's the ones who really believe in this sector, the ones who, you know, they might not be cashed up, but they're doing better than most people. They're, they're doing better than most companies. Um, you know, they're, they're operating their entities. When you talk to them and you ask them what they're doing, like, like I know a lot of people who are actually going on buying sprees right now. Okay, go on. You know, Say they're, more they're words. Buying, <clears throat> say more words. Yeah, exactly. They're 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 buying a lot of assets and. Because they can pick up, they can pick up, you know, whether it's like a royalty agreement, a brand, um, not, not, not so much cultivation, but like, you know, those little and not ancillary, but like, like, um, uh, downstreamed parts of the value chain. Right. And, you know, I was talking to a couple of people, actually, there's one transaction that I saw or that I heard about actually, where uh, a cultivator was like talking to another cultivator. So this is a Canadian company. It's a Canadian LP talking to another Canadian LP. And they basically just got all their IP for next to nothing. And I was like, well, wh how, how did you guys strike that deal? And they were just like, look, those guys were so worn out. They didn't want anything to do with it. They just, you know, they were basically incentivized by the board to make the sale. They made the sale and they're basically shutting down the company. So, you know, we're seeing a lot on the private side where people are, well, where companies are picking up assets uh, and they're getting some great deals, whether it's like a revenue share, whether it's, you know, picking up a brand for half the price that uh, the other company had paid for it, et cetera. 
Um, <clears throat> so basically what I'm getting at with that is the operators who are here right now, you know, I think we can start, th there used to be a saying early on in the industry, when you talk to more sophisticated money managers, they would say, well, you know, I'd ask them, why don't you guys invest in cannabis? There's obviously a great opportunity. You know, you can pick up canopy right now for 15 times 2023 earnings. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, well, look, you know, it's too early and I can't find the Ford GM and Chevy of the industry, mm -hmm. right? To use that example. I think now we're at a point where, you know, if you're watching closely, maybe they might not be the Fords, the GMs, or the Chevys. But we're now seeing the companies that are emerging, they're more sophisticated, there's actual data, there's actual sales, and mm -hmm. now they're striking truly lucrative deals or creative deals. Maybe they're not lucrative right now, but they are, they're, they're, they're deals that could be a creative. Yeah, which I, I mean, find really interesting. Yeah, a creative is a bit of a technical word, right? But um, but they're definitely creative and they're uh, they're really opportunistic deals, right? I mean, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, like like look, People are fatigued, right? This is this is the the um, ongoing slow extinction of the cannabis industry, uh, not at large, but it's an extinction event within the industry. And people are throwing in the towel, mm -hmm. and uh, people are fed up with cannabis. That's that's the reality. Um, one of the really interesting headlines mentioning canopy growth was uh, they sold their headquarters in Smith Falls. Right. And they actually sold it back to Hershey. So that Hershey building was sitting empty for a very long time. It's 700,000 feet. Um, I think they originally bought the building for like 7 million bucks or something like that. Yeah. And so, and they sold it back for 53. So if you think about that for a second, I mean, they did extraordinarily well on the real estate. Um, and, and when we talk about that for a second, you know, we've been talking for years about, the surge of industrial real estate, how COVID has helped that along. Um, and, and, uh, this is, you know, sort of what we've been seeing is that the value that cannabis companies have been finding is in their industrial real estate, because that's an asset that has done really, really well for them. Now, the problem is if you look at these assets, uh, the, on paper, you go, wow, that's a great sale, you know, from seven to 53, that's a you know an incredible return. Well, not so fast because they had to put a lot of money into those buildings. And typically, what you'll see is that whatever profit was made, they put in that amount of money into the building. There's there's not a whole lot, um, yeah. There's not a whole lot of profit to be had on that. And some of that is general building improvements, you know, roof, HVAC, etc. Um, but a lot of that is stuff that you know Hershey will have to turn around and rip out because it's just you know they don't need. You know these these cannabis growing type rooms, and they don't need fifty thousand lights. Yeah, lighting like crazy, and you know all that kind of stuff. So they don't they don't need that. That's in fact it hurts the value um, of of these assets. And people will often pencil like the the cost to bring it back to base building and take that off of the purchase price, um, which is not insignificant by any means. On a seven hundred thousand foot building, I mean, you could easily easily talking about millions and millions of dollars. So. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting to see that that kind of, you know, seven to 10 X of industrial real estate, even in um, small sleepy markets. Uh, actually, I would say especially in smaller and sleepy markets that are having kind of a, a resurgence um, has, has been really interesting. And um, at least, listen, it's good news for places like Smith Falls because the fall of Canopy was was really, you know, not a good story for them. Right. And the return of Hershey, I think, is is great. Uh, so. You just reminded me of that when you mentioned canopy growth. Well, yeah, I, I, I've thought of that transaction quite some time now. And, <clears throat> you know, wh why did Hershey buy that facility back? Well, I mean, they're they're going to manufacture, I assume. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the thinking was. <laughs> but, um, you know, overall, like, if you just look at industrial vacancy across Ontario, because it's, it's not all like they, they sold it that long ago. It was like five years ago, right? No, it was probably like 2016 or something. So like seven years. Like a lot has changed, right? It was a, yeah. a defunct factory for a long time. Um, so it, it was a long time ago that that, that actually um, happened. A lot's changed, especially industrial real estate. Um, I think it was, I think an article back in 07 when the, when the uh, plant shut down. So, you know, it's been 15 years or so. And they were sitting on the plant oh, okay, for a long yeah. time. Um, but yeah. they were only able to sell it to a cannabis company eventually, right? No one else could want really wanted to make use of it. Um, but now with industrial 
being so scarce. Uh, you know, these kind of things, people are more willing to look outside of where they would normally look. Um, and cannabis companies need money, right? Uh, these facilities are not worth much as cannabis facilities. So there you go. It's, it's a very happy marriage of, of buyers. And I, I don't know about happy, but it's, <laughs> it works. It works. <laughs> It'd be hilarious if they started selling infused chocolates out of there. I mean, it would be interesting. Definitely be interesting. And, and so to go to your point, People like the strong have an enormous opportunity to consolidate right now. Now, doing things like brand deals, things that are are not um, cash intensive, I think, makes a lot of sense. Doing things which uh, involve, you know, buying companies that are distressed. Well, those companies that are distressed, they often are distressed for a reason. Meaning, like they probably have very high cash burn. They have their own issues. People don't want to inherit other people's issues right now. They want to remain mostly independent. Um, but there are pockets and areas where, you know, if you pick your shot selectively, like, yes, you can add a lot of value to your life um, for, for basically no cost. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the interesting part for these companies. If consolidation and capital crunch continues, um, I don't see. I don't see a lot of ad- ways out of the room for the capital crunch, by the way. I mean, we can argue if this is the bottom or if it's going to get worse. And I don't think anyone really knows. I, I just don't think there's going to be a tremendous amount of urgency for penny stocks and super risks appetite stocks um, with the with the caveat being, you know, federal movement and federal action, which is a, is a non-zero chance. I mean, that's so hard to quantify, um, but especially as we're getting closer to this 24 election. You know, we're, we're, we're not that far off. And the Republican candidate in number two right now, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a guy who could easily be Trump's VP choice. Um, you know, he has publicly said that he disagrees with the Republican Party and they should focus on decriminalizing cannabis right now. He's a young guy. Right. So it, it's not that surprising that that's his position. Um, so, you know, he's only 38 years old. So I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not that surprised that he's he's kind of with it on this issue. Um, and he comes from the pharmaceutical industry, which is also kind of interesting. But there's just a non-zero chance that this is going to become more of an issue as we get closer and closer t- um, to where we're going. And let's not forget that rescheduling review is supposed to be submitted by the end of this year, is what they're saying. It'll take some time for them to consider that and then make a you know recommendation and make a decision and blah, blah, blah. But that kind of lines up for me for that October surprise of next year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that was one of the only catalysts that I think still gets talked about with um, with some level of optimism. Totally. Totally. And, and you know, it's a wild card. So sometimes it's hard to invest on, uh, you know, those. That that's kind my of entire investment thesis, man. <laughs> <laughs> Speculation wild, and wild cards. Yeah. yeah. Wild card investment management. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, listen, why roll the dice when you can invest with us? <laughs> we'll roll the dice for you. Yeah, exactly. And charge <laughs> a fee. So, so look, uh, you know, to, to cap off, we're going to do, um, you know, an earnings review with Nick as we always do. I think it's going to be very instructive. Uh, I think you're seeing more of a separation between these companies. You know, a lot of it has to do with footprint. A lot of it has, you know, some of it has to do with operation. Some of it has to do with capital structure. Sometimes the best opportunities come in life when you're able to purchase companies with good assets, but bad capital structures. And just to go back to real estate for a second, um, if rates kind of keep going the way they're going and and have, you know, rates have really been surging lately um, as people are starting to feel that, you know, we're not really that close to a recession. um, And, you know, if we are at a recession, it's going to take time to play out and there might not be a rate cut coming anytime soon. If that's the case, like you're going to see these, for example, multifamily projects, apartment buildings where people took floating rate debt. And now because the uh, you have what's called negative leverage, you know, the, the, the cap rate or the yield of the asset is much lower than what you can borrow money at. So, for example, you can borrow, um, you know, in, in let's just use Canada here. You could borrow at, let's say, 5%, you know, roughly for um, kind of the cheapest apartment debt. And those same properties will probably trade, you know, somewhere around four, four and a half kind of return. 
if you have too much debt on your property, especially if it's floating rate debt, you're underwater. Um, this is more of an issue in the U.S. and Canada, I think. But something's going to have to happen. You're going to need to come up with some kind of liquidity or refinance that. You know, th- there needs to be some mechanism there that bails you out. Um, people are kind of hanging on by the skin of their teeth, and you could see that as being really interesting opportunities for people to come in um, and say, "Look, I'll inject the liquidity you need uh, in exchange for." you know, you name it, right? Preferred equity, you know, equity position in your building, equity position in your company, if you have, you know, a portfolio, um, those end up being some of the greatest investments when you have a good company, but a bad balance sheet, because you can fix that by writing a check. It's a lot harder to fix a bad company. um, Because that just requires, you know, there just might be no fixing a bad company, it might just be that the competitive dynamics and supply demand, whatever doesn't work. Um, So, that's going to be really interesting to keep an eye on uh, in real estate and in other sectors as well. I, I'm just hesitating because I don't know if – it's hard to say if cannabis is is in that category or not, right? Most of the problems that we're seeing in cannabis are more market dynamics and supply and demand, but there are definitely companies being choked off by the debt that they have. Yeah, and, and there are bad companies within cannabis. It's not like every cannabis company is good and just the market is bad. It's it's not that's not the case either, right? No, totally, like, totally. Yeah. So 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 yeah, I I do I definitely agree with with, with everything you you're you're saying there. Um so yeah, going, going, mean, going further on the legislative side, I just want also want to point out so Ohio did officially um get on the ballot for November. Uh mm-hmm. so we're gonna have wreck on the ballot. Another really, really good piece of news. There was voting in Ohio. Um, in August, okay, for a single issue. And the issue was, it's, it's kind of an interesting one. It was to see, it was a single question to see if the percentage needed to, um, to enact a referendum would increase from 50 to 60, similar to how it is in Florida. So this was uh, voted on and uh, it did not pass. It failed. Um, and this is really good news. So, so really, this whole conversation was around around abortion rights. It had very little to do with cannabis. Um, and so, so November seventh is when the um, the special election is, and um, it just needs the fifty percent to pass. Is is the long and short of it. And this is very good news. Um, abortion rights is going to be on the ballot as well. So we could also see really good turnout, especially from younger and more democratic voters. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we've got a very good chance in Ohio. If the threshold's fifty percent, I think we are good to go. Um, obviously, getting Ohio is very critical, but I think that um, on top of that, Ohio being more of a purple state and more of a midwestern state, um, I think that this is a really good, will be a very good bellwether. And um, it will absolutely, all of the campaigns will absolutely pay attention to the results of not only abortion, but the cannabis results. Mm-hmm. And if cannabis like blows the doors off, like like that would be kind of 60% or more, um, you better believe they're going to be very careful in how they approach the topic uh, on the Republican side, you know, uh, saying anything negative about it. Um, and you know, we sort of know that it's in Biden's playbook to pull something out about cannabis uh, next year, um, hopefully rescheduling through Schedule 3. So mm-hmm. all TBD, nothing happening in that regards tomorrow, uh, but but all something to watch out for. I mean, Ohio is one that's very is, is very exciting, right? That's a state that we've been watching pretty closely for quite some time. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that Ohio's got me more excited than like, Maryland, I'd say. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that's a interesting point. I think Maryland. Listen, I, I want them both, so I'm happy yeah, we yeah, got yeah, Maryland. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm happy we, we've got Ohio coming, so um, that's good. Now let's talk about um, let, let so let's talk about uh, uh, Ohio and let's talk about Germany, right? So Germany legalized, quote unquote. Um, and now the the question is, what does this actually mean? So it's very unclear. I believe that they're having cannabis clubs. Um, they're expanding the medical program as well. 
Um, so, you know, Curalif will tell you how amazing this is and, you know, how it's great for all the German operators, uh, which it very well might be. I, I really don't know. But um, the fact that they're going more for the decrim approach, listen, on one hand, it's great because it means that people are going to get used to this more and it's going to become a thing. And it's great to see progress of any kind. But yeah, we're and, not we're not getting that legalization progress that we wanted. Exactly. And, and I will I will say it does signal, you know, to the states that, you know, G- Germany is obviously a very well respected country. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're they're legalizing, it may maybe light light a fire under the states, you know? Yeah. I mean, if they had, if they they had legalized though, right. Which they're not like, it's this, it's this, it's this middle of the road kind of milk toast decrim measure. Right. Um, And on the one hand, it's good because people get access to cannabis and you know, that's important. On the other hand, it's bad because it's all gray market. Mm -hmm. You're not actually creating, you know, the, the rules and whatnot. So look, I think as we've seen, that is the path of least resistance. Um, in these countries, it's very difficult to actually figure out uh, how to thread the needle and do all the systems and get around the EU laws and all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, unfortunately, decrim is kind of just the easiest path, um, which kind of brings us to what's going on in New York, right? Where you've got you've got a tough program, you've got people who don't want to enforce. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, on top of that, now the program is being sued, um, for the way it rolled out its equity applications. The judge has ordered them to stop, uh, all of those. And it's, it's creating a lot of chaos and confusion and anger and, you know, probably some heads are going to roll. Um, so just a program that, that, you know, people have, um, originally been very excited about just just very poorly executed uh as we've kind of known and and pointed to for a while right so um very unfortunate situation if you remember um last earnings review all of the msos were talking about how they were ramping up uh they they were going to ramp up uh production in new york finally so um i don't know if that's related to this lawsuit i don't know if this lawsuit ultimately helps or hurts them um yeah, and, and I and I think there was some kind of negotiated settlement that was being worked on that apparently the state uh, has stopped negotiations on. So I don't know. I, I just am very skeptical on New York. Um, you know, very odd, and and just goes to show you like the oddity and polarity of the system where New York is like this gray market. Um, you know, stores on every corner. You know, every bodega selling cannabis illegally out in the open. And then New Jersey is like this hyper-regulated, super tight, um, not enough dispensaries to go around system, right? And it's completely polar opposite, these two things. Yeah. I wonder how people in New Jersey feel about that. Well, you know what's funny is, is, I was thinking about this the other day, like, you know, if a corporation does not pay their tax, um, you know, corporations are not anyone's friend. Uh, especially today, right? People hate big corporations. So so people just by default are against big corporations. So if a big company doesn't pay its tax, right? Um, people go like, wow, typical, what a you know terrible company and, and greed and cheating from the system and all that. And yet, you know, when you look at illegal dispensaries, I mean, these companies by definition, you know, don't have, are not following, you know, union, they don't have unions and they're not, they're not collecting tax. They're not paying federal tax or cash businesses, Etc. And people don't really seem to have a problem with that. You, you know, that's actually funny. So when a couple of years ago, and I was spending a lot of time in California. I asked somebody in California about that because that they're they having a very similar problem with illicit uh, dispensaries. I was like, why don't you guys just shut them down? They're not paying tax, blah, blah, blah. And they were saying it's a lot harder to do that because the people who are the owner operators of these dispensaries, they're actually members of the community. Right. So they, mm-hmm. they live there, they're they they know people. It's not like this unfriendly place. So it's 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 a little bit different, you know, than like your your neighborhood Starbucks or Jamba Juice or whatever corporation you want to use. It's an interesting um, point. <clears throat> but yeah, so because because I I you know, I thought the same thing. I was like, why don't you just come in and just shut them down? It's like, well, you really can't because it's not always the case, but most of the times it's like, well, it's a small community, uh, or a smaller community and you know the person who's working there knows this person, blah, 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 and they're ingrained, right? So it's a little bit different. 
that might be true in certain circumstances. I, I'm I'm not sure how much I buy that. I think the harder thing is, especially once it's become legalized, it's hard to charge these people. Like, which by the way, might you could argue might be the right response, but like for these actual stores, it's just weird. It's a weird situation where you're you're you know trying to. You remember this whole thing with cafe, right? When they were trying to shut down cafe in Toronto was enforcing these bylaws really strictly they shut down every illegal dispensary before Dude, the legal they ones put, opened. remember in cafe they put actual concrete cylinder blocks giant concrete cylinder blocks in front of the store and the and guy just, a crane to move well the guy put a lawn chair outside and he would just say what do you want and he would run into the store and, and come back and give it to you <laughs> so so i i think that you know um look obviously the 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 law just doesn't have the teeth. And then also there, there's just not a lot of appetite to enforce. Right. So that is what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, very famously a, a guy in California said that, you know, if I get this guy in front of a jury and say he was growing a hundred acres of cannabis, nobody cares. Like nobody's going to convict him. But if I turn around and say that, Hey, he was actually using water from the local reservoir and not following local EPA regulations for that cannabis, they will throw him in jail with a, without a second's notice. So it comes to, you know, what people have appetite for in terms of enforcement, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the police have a lot of different problems they have to solve these days. So this kind of falls lower on the list, um, you know, in, until you actually have some kind of real problem from it. So uh, look, just to, just to wrap it up, I want to talk quickly about what we're seeing overall, I think is relatively positive. You've got some wildcard potential, um, and you know, who knows, like, like this could be something that gets a little bit juicier, uh, Mitch McConnell, who, who froze on camera and, um, I think is looking very weak right now, uh, similar to, to Dianne Feinstein, um, who's a Democrat in the Senate. These people got to go, man. I mean, it's, it's, you know, octogenarian city, not to mention, of course, the president himself. Um, you know, people are, I think, fed up with it. And I, I think, I think what that means, like if we just think about, you know, Mitch McConnell, he's the death, he's the the kiss of death for cannabis, right? The grim reaper of cannabis. He doesn't have control of his party the way he used to. You know, the vultures are circling. They can see the guy's weak. Um, so that was a very big moment for him where he, you know, very publicly, um, you know, you could see that something's not right. And uh, I think that, you know, it's hard to ever think what Chuck Schumer is thinking. Right. But um, clearly there's an opening on the field right now to pass something, you know, Mitch, who's the guy who, who would hold a line on this kind of thing. You got to think he does not have the power he used to have. Um, And so I don't know if it's now, I don't know if it's in the future. It's hard to say, but uh, eventually this guy's going to have to go. And um, I I think now he's not up for reelection for, for years and years and years, but um, uh, the real question is, you know, will he have to concede power to somebody else um, within his his party? And uh, that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, listen, <laughs> I think it was what, like a, a couple months ago when he fell in the market rallied. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, so. cl- clearly he's not well liked. And, and you know. <laughs> I mean, when that story came out, I, I did. I ended up buying cannabis stocks. And, and then he said, no, 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 I'm coming back. And I was like, oh, here we go. Ah, great. But, Got me again. But listen, a, a fall is in private. Nobody really knows. That frees up on camera. That went very viral. And, um, you know, everyone, I think, looks at that and acknowledges that that is a problem. Um, and so so something has to be done about that. So, mm-hmm. uh, look, those wild cards for cannabis are definitely on the field. In the meantime... Right. If they trade at more attractive valuations, which, I, you know, I think we're definitely there for companies like Verano, for example, which had a great quarter, um, very cash flow uh, generative on OCF. Uh, then I think things are getting, uh, you know, interesting. And when no one else is paying attention um, and, and the, you know, there's people sort of go, well, why would I buy today? What's the immediate catalyst? Right. That's usually when you if you can be patient, have the opportunity to potentially hit it out of the park. You know, if, if your hold period can be a couple of years, I um, mean, obviously you hope it happens sooner. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, now that we're kind of coming out of the summer, I think there's going to be some more interesting things going on. 
more talking about markets, more talking about financials. So always love to hear your questions, guys. CINpodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the last bit of summer. And until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.